It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, it's certainly been a busy couple of weeks in MotoGP land amidst Suzuki confirming their intent to leave the sport at the end of the year. The scoop in the last week, perhaps, that some teams have been breaking the tyre pressure rules. We'll have a bit of chat on that. We've also had a Grand Prix, Le Mans. And for the third time this season, Anea Bastianini rose to the occasion to take the win. The most of any so far this year. The recording date is Tuesday, the 17th of May. My name is Harry Benjamin. Joining me as ever is Crash MotoGP editor Pete McLaren and former Grand Prix rider and British champion Keith Hewin. Uh, hello, gents. Nice to see you again. Um, we're a bit late this week. Sorry about that. But uh, Keith, you've been uh, busy over the weekend up in Ireland. How was all of your Northern Ireland trip? What are you going to find out as soon as I start speaking? I've got no throat left. I've, I've got a stinking cold. I'm absolutely hanging. It's got to be said. It's <laughs> not a good weekend. <laughs> it was a very, very good weekend in Northern Ireland. The Northwest 200. Um, it hadn't, it, we hadn't had a meeting there for three years, so it was a uh, whiz-bang. Uh, you'll be able to read it all on Crash, I'm sure, because um, you know, there were lots of very controversial things that happened in Northern Ireland this weekend and plenty of inquests going on right now about it. But from an overall event point of view, an absolute cracker it always is. I mean... I partner Steve Parrish in commentary for the first time in years and years and years, so you can guarantee a good laugh with that reprobate. It's always quite good commentary. <laughs> um, but, of course, it's, it was a funny feeling for me because I, I kind of, I really enjoy being in the Northwest. It's the first international I ever won, incidentally. Um, but I've always got one eye on the phone for MotoGP. It's bloody annoying because <laughs> you focus. <laughs> Uh, and it's such a different style of everything, you know, road racing compared with MotoGP is just so, so massively different. Um, but some of the things that are very similar, and we're going to be going there with tyres in a minute, obviously major tyre issues in the Northwest 200, and it's a controversy in MotoGP at the moment as well. It certainly is. And well, let's talk about the MotoGP that you were able to keep one eye on while you were up doing the Northwest. Um, Bagnaia on pole. Looked like he had the pace for the win, but a crash, a mistake, uh, lost the win, lost a podium for sure as well. Miller Bastianini making their way through. Quasararo, shocking start, but made his way back at the end. Just couldn't quite get past Alicia Spargo. He really gave him a fight to the line. Um, but it was it was a bit of an action-packed Le Mans with a bit of, bit of staleness in the middle, but then it got going towards the end. I was going to say, the start of Le Mans was absolutely frantic, wasn't it? It was mm. wings flying everywhere, everyone nudging everyone everywhere. I think the, the significance of Le Mans for me is, A, they got it away in the dry. I mean, to the detriment maybe of, of Moto3 and, uh, and the like. 
but they hit the target they needed to hit. It was dry. It was raising in temperature again. So the tyre issue comes into it. But significant was the three-time crasher, including in the warm-up, Bastianini. He just grew in stature through the entire race. He took it to everyone else. He forced Bagnaia into a mistake. Um, it's phenomenal at the moment what Bastianini is achieving on the on the older bike. We talked about it before we came on air. It might be an older bike. It might not be the factory bike. Excuse me just a second. Yes, I have a stinking cold to go with everything else as well. <laughs> Most will say I deserve the state I'm in. <laughs> so, so please, no sympathy. Not that I was going to get any. Um, the, the, the fact was that Bastianini, you know, he rose in stature on an older bike, perhaps. But I've always said this, the bloody... Um, Oh, now my phone's going. <laughs> it's all happening today. It's because we changed the day. That's why. It's because we're recording on a Tuesday and it's all going off. You, you can't you can't beat a professional broadcaster working with crap. <laughs> <laughs> you, must, you must excuse me, folks. I'm doing my best, which isn't very, <laughs> very high at the moment. Um, Bastianini on an old bike. Um, it's got all the data. It's got all the, you know, they've been there. They've tried everything else. They've been up and down the scale of, what should we do here at this racetrack? It's already in the system, already in the software, already in the in the notes. Um, and that makes a difference. Sometimes when you're there on a full factory bike that's been tweaked, you know, it is a full-on prototype that's, that might be slightly difficult to, to hit the sweet spot with. And I think that's what we see quite often. I mean, Jack uh, Miller really went with a, a softer front tyre, which was seemed to work for him, whereas the others are, were on slightly harder tyres. Um, that didn't make a difference in the end. I think uh, Pastianini grew, like I say, in stature right the way through. I mean, three crashes, you would think. I mean, I've always said it. I think we said it when we were talking about the build-up. Le Mans is a crash fest. It is just carnage there. You know, you, each and every one of those corners is is, is is difficult, and you can fall down. And Bagnaia, despite the fact he's not really a crasher, you know, Recordamon is, is one of those corners, that double right-hander. You can really dig in there normally. It's not a corner that that you kind of slide off in the middle of it so much, although. But having said that, it was faster than it's ever been, Le Mans. I mean, like, the overall race time was faster than it's ever been. It, it, records were broken left, right, and centre. So that I think that MotoGP has got to the point where it is so precise, so fast, so accurate. Um, we can't see the mistakes. We can't feel the mistakes anymore like we used to be able to. You used to be able to see riders when they were slightly out of shape. Nowadays, the only time that, that, that we get any inkling that there's something not quite 100% is when they slide off the thing. It's a really strange feeling for me watching MotoGP now. It is, it's a remarkable series. It's, it, you know, they're all within you know, hundredths of a second of each other, whatever the manufacturer, whatever the, the style of chassis or, or, or motor. And it's just a series that you... I'm going to get sworn out for this. It's gone a bit Formula One, you know. In that, in that, it's it's kind of it's down to the bikes are so close. There's nothing they can do about it. You know, overtaking was a real problem at Le Mans. Now it it never really used to be. Overtaking was you know quite easy at Le Mans, but now it seems to be it's a problem. Aero is is making a major difference. Um, so I don't know where we're quite going with this in conversation terms or in the in the series. It's a, it's a very tricky thing to get around and get over. Um, maybe we should start talking about the tyres. <laughs> God help. Well, before, before we do that, Pete, you know, what was your... You had a, a different view of the race as well. What did you make of it? Quite a costly mistake for Banyaya in the end in what is a really crucial sort of time 
amongst the Ducati riders. It, it was, wasn't it? You know, he just got this win, had, had the bad start to the year. He'd won at, um, you know, Jerez really dominantly and looked looked great, back on form, looking to build momentum. As you, as you said in your introduction, Harry, even if he didn't win the race, he was on course for a pretty pretty safe podium, even if he couldn't catch Bastianini. And then instead, you know, what is he, 46 points from the lead now? And and it's 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 a tricky situation we're seeing for Ducati. I mean, in a, of course, they love to see Bastianini on a Ducati up there, but you've got the three guys at the front, Quattararo, uh, Aleish and uh, Bastianini, and then there's a bit of a gap, isn't there, to uh, to the others. So, so the only guy at the moment in the fight is on last year's Ducati. Now, what do you do about that? Do you, do you start developing last year's Ducati, sending Piro out, the test rider, to maybe try and help Bastianini, or or do you rely on your factory guys, you know, getting that GP22 ahead in the second half of the season? Keith explained why last year's bike can be, you know, a better option. But I think we're, we're now, we've now had seven rounds. You know, we kind of expected the GP22 to sort of cross over and become the clear favourite bike, I guess, round now or before now. Instead, we're seeing three wins for Bastianini. No one else has won more than one race. I think it's, uh, you know, the, the, the beast is back again, isn't he? But I think I always, I, I keep juggling back and forth. What's the biggest shocker this year? Is it Bastianini or is it Aleish? You know, and it, and it keeps going, <laughs> you know, Aleish gets the win and now he gets the podiums and then Bastianini again. You know, both of them outstanding so far this year. Yeah, and Aleish hasn't done a deal yet and spitting tax at the moment. That's the um, the news of the moment, isn't it? He's proper not happy. I don't know why that should be. That might be, is that a little bit of arrogance from Aprilia in that they're thinking that Aleish isn't a top rider and so therefore they're hanging on because they might be able to sign someone they think is better than him? I think they're making a mistake if they're thinking that because I think Aleish has made the step. We always talk about the step, don't we, in, in any racing class? You know, who's making the step, whether it be the, the chassis, the motor, the rider, you know, the team generally. <clears throat> and I think Aleish has genuinely made a step since he took that win. I mean, three podiums in the last three races he's there he's there all the time the bike looks good he looks really good on it um i think they're being slightly disrespectful in not um, sorting out a deal for him personally and, and he clearly makes the difference doesn't he because you look at the other side of the garage and, and Vinales is, is, well, is not there yeah i think you, you it's not a bad point harry but i think I mean, maverick Vinales is he's one of those talents that's a bit innate at the, it's not going anywhere at the moment is it i mean i don't know what he's going to bring Maverick back to where we expect him to be. It's, you know, he he's a super motorcycle racer, um, but he just doesn't seem to find that sweet spot that, that's good for him. Um, and at the end of the day, he's the one that's going to get dropped. Where's he going to go? I mean, the rider market, we've talked about it already. The rider market is, you know, financially is tanked because we've got Rins and Mia that are both out there. And <laughs> bloody hell, good weekend for them, wasn't it, Suzuki? Yeah. Um, but they're out there on the, on the rider market now. You've got Aleish that's that's obviously not happy with what's being said and done. Will somebody take a take a punt and move him across somewhere? You've got the situation that you it's a, it's a really interesting jigsaw puzzle at the moment to see who goes where, um, and it's all really going to be held up by what happens to the Suzuki um, slots on the grid. Who gets them? You well, know that's that's the big talking point and we're not going to hear about that i said it ages ago that, that that will be done behind closed doors it's not the japanese way to air their you know laundry in public um they will be doing that deal with dawner whatever it co- costs whatever the the negotiation is between them you can you can be fairly sure it will come out if not amicably it will come out quietly um and the slots will be available to whoever you know bids for them at the mm. end of the day maybe a brilliant hopefully a brilliant 
and that kind of rules out that maybe that's why they're holding back at the moment. They can't spend too much money on LH because it will be money. They can't spend too much money on LH because they might be um, looking for two more slots. And so the little Noali factory is going to have to stump up a load more, you know, team members and um, factory production to, to make, you know, four motorcycles, which actually means, you know, eight at the end of the day because you've got two <laughs> each. So that's quite a lot of extra engineering that's going on there. It does definitely sound like a pretty are talking to other teams about next year. We, we did hear from, from Dorna that, um, you know, they'd be quite happy to keep the team numbers the same for next year because it, it is a bit early if, if a new manufacturer was going to come in. And we heard this from the Aprilia boss, Rivola, on the weekend. He was saying he's not sure that, that Dorna want to replace, a, you know, a manufacturer, Suzuki, with a satellite team. But that doesn't sort of close the door on having two more Aprilias because the RNF team, their contract with Yamaha is only one year and it finishes obviously at the end of this season, but the decision on next year needs to be made pretty much around now. And so it does seem like that's that that could be an option that they might go with Aprilia instead. So whatever happens with the Suzuki grid slots, we could still see two more Aprilias. Don't you remember uh, Yamaha saying, you will remember because I know you're cleverer than me, but that the engineering um, forward planning starts in June. Um, so you're absolutely bang on it, Pete, when it comes to that. I remember that, if Yamaha were going to provide two more motorcycles to, as it was, the Sepang International Circuit team, they needed to know what they were doing in June to get that engineering in place to provide the bikes for the start of testing at the beginning of the new year. So you're bang on. It needs to be a decision needs to be around now. Quite Questions. Hectic. Questions that have come in on this worth mentioning you to you at the moment. On this, uh, David Murray asks, um, are others going to look at what's happening at the moment with Suzuki and and, and the superbike market, which I know we've spoken about in, in the last a couple of shows, it seeming is down. It looks like the sport's a bit shaky at the moment. Are others going to join? Well, that's the thing, isn't it? That's where I said the, the sexit comment. I mean, people laughed at that. But if you actually look at it in a bit more depth rather than in a jokey manner, I mean, it is a Brexit situation. Like Europe want to punish the UK on, or not punish, but try, they want to make it more difficult for the UK to be successful um, purely and simply because any other, you know, dispossessed region might want to try and do the same thing. And then Europe falls apart. Well, the same thing applies in a much lesser manner, obviously. Uh, to MotoGP, if suddenly you can break a contract that you've only just signed for five years, um, just because you suddenly look at your books and think, oh dear, this ain't looking too good. Dorna's whole business model is blown completely out of the water. You know, like Dorna, you know, that is a company, that is a big deal. Um, they, have, they have brought MotoGP to where it is and they have invested absolutely millions and millions and millions and millions, probably billions of pounds over the period of time into making this sport what it is. So suddenly Suzuki renege on a deal, you know, they've got to pay. I would think that Dorna are going to make it difficult for them. And therefore, they're also going to be making it difficult for every other team that might want to suddenly change what they've agreed to. You know, you, you can't just slither out of a deal just because suddenly it doesn't suit you. Yeah, there are going to be some some things like wars and, and so on that, that are probably classed as some kind of force majeure, I suppose. But some contracts don't have force majeure in it anymore. I'm not a legal man, so I don't know anything too much about that. But in the past, if some exceptional circumstances came up, you could slither out of a contract. You know, 
in Suzuki in exceptional circumstances? Does the, the war in Ukraine, um, albeit that we can see that we're going to all have aggravation come a few years' time because of the war in Ukraine, um, is that a valid excuse for Suzuki dumping their contract? You alluded to it a minute ago, Harry, with the, the with the road bike situation. You're absolutely bang on it right. The old adage of, you know, win on a Sunday, sell on a Monday is out the window because sports bikes aren't selling. Mm. You know, that, there's some beauties out there and, and yeah, wonderful motorcycles. But Suzuki don't, their range is a little bit, what's the word I'm looking for? Slightly older, I think, really. It's slightly more jaded, perhaps, than some of the other manufacturers at the moment. And they've obviously looking to go in a different direction. And I think that's going to happen across all of the all of the manufacturers they're looking at different styles of motorcycles sports bikes are not the big sellers as they were in the past it's got to have a knock-on effect eventually is motor gp uh the hotbed of development um can they convert what they learn from a motor gp into an endurance bike or into a off-road machine or into you know slightly more uh customizable platforms i don't know i mean it's uh it's something the factories will know for sure, and they'll all be looking at it. Um, but it's Suzuki who's jumped first. And you wonder, getting back to your original question, whether anyone else will be wanting to do the same thing, despite them all, I think, selling, uh, having signed quite long contracts. Mm. Well, Pete, go on. I was on. just going to say, Harry, just it, perhaps does this link in with you know what we've just been talking about and potentially Yamaha cutting back to only two bikes and a factory team? I mean, we were all asking, why, why is this the M1 not really been developed for this year, you know, what was going on during the technical freeze, maybe there was a freeze on their budgets, you know, maybe the whole COVID situation in Japan was a lot more serious than we realized. We're now seeing the effects at Suzuki. Does that explain why the Yamaha appears to be pretty much unchanged? And now we've got these rumors about, will there even be a satellite Yamaha team next year? So the question is absolutely a valid one. And uh, yeah, I think you've got to be, you've got to be concerned that others might at least take a look at what Suzuki has done and gone, you know, would that be right for us as well? We are going to be on the end of the information trail, Pete. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to be we're going to be reacting to this rather than be proactive regarding the uh, announcements. So there's a lot going on at the moment in the world generally. I mean, we're not in a particularly good place, are we? I think with with things generally. I mean, I don't want to be a doom and gloom, you know, master, but that I think there's a few things that are going to be changing over the next year or two, and uh, it ain't going to be easy for a lot of big commercial firms. I feel. No, it, we should tough. say that there has been an official announcement from Suzuki since we last spoke. It mm. did eventually come out just on the Thursday at Le Mans. That, of course, it says that they're planning or, you know, it wasn't that we are definitely leaving because, of course, they need to find this agreement with Dorna that Keith was talking about. But be under no illusions. I mean, they thank the team and the supporters. I mean, it's clear that they are going, but they couldn't state that publicly yet until they reach this agreement with Dorna. The, the other... Japanese hate this kind of stuff. They hate having stuff out in the open. It's it's mm. not, you know, they like things to be privately done and properly done in business. I mean, this will be excruciating for them. The the other question that we have come coming off this, and we I know we were talking briefly a minute ago about Aprilia might want to replace those slots that Suzuki leave. Um, somebody's asked, I wonder what the probability of Triumph putting together a Grand Prix team is in the future. They supply obviously all the Moto2 engines and have also been putting some nice sports bikes on the market lately as well. Is it something that they might be considering, Keith? <laughs> it's quite romantic, isn't it? Mm. It's, it's a wonderfully romantic kind of 
Not a bloody chance. The amount of money. <laughs> that dashed. The amount of money you've got to put into developing a MotoGP bike to the level that they're at at the moment is just... I can't imagine John Bloor signing that one off, that's for sure. I mean, any more than I can see Kawasaki coming back, any more than I can see BMW coming in. What it would have to take is a sea change. In I mean, I can see Triumph, if they wanted to enter into a, a series that might be more relevant for them, would be World Superbikes. But, you know, production-based bikes. It's a funny thing, isn't it? Production-based bikes, when you look at it, you know, at the weekend at the Northwest 200, which is representative of road bikes at the end of the day, it's on a road, it is road bikes. You've got the super stock bikes that are doing over 200 miles an hour. And they're like a fraction of the cost of a super bike. Jeez, you know, quite yeah. a lot on the road. Yeah. People are using super stock bikes rather than super bikes, purely and simply. They're more manageable. They're certainly a lot cheaper. Um and they're nearly as fast. I mean, I think we're 206 miles an hour for a for a, for a superbike around the northwest, and I think they were 100 and nearly. I think it was two. I think somebody did touch 200 on a in a slipstream on a on a on a super stock bike. You know, it's remarkable stuff that you've got. But then you've got to kind of put that in perspective. They're road bikes. They are available to ordinary people. They shouldn't be allowed. It's just crazy. <laughs> you got a 200 mile an hour motorcycle with very few tweaks um, in the hands of people that, that, you know, I'll say it, can't ride them. You know, Peter Hickman, most people are not when it comes to riding on the road. Um, you see it every day. I'm, I follow a guy on a, a you know, big bikes and you think, does this bloke actually know what he's doing? Um, that's not to insult every road rider there is out there, but th th you know these bikes are now so incredibly powerful. You just wonder where the link is—is is the link broken between you know what is being sold and where MotoGP is going? Um, if that's the case, it's quite worrying for the future. Mm. And just on the manufacturer part, I mean, the time frame in this—I mean, bear in mind that no manufacturers expected Suzuki to leave. No other manufacturer, I mean. So no one was sort of planning, well, we could make a bid for MotoGP here. Okay, now there's potentially an opportunity. But to put a MotoGP program together from nothing in time for next year, it, impossible, I think. I mean, KTM, it was, it was, it was several years, you know, from when yeah, they announced they were coming into MotoGP to actually being on the grid. So I, I think definitely for 23, you, you just couldn't do it. The only way I can see a new manufacturer, let's say, to put it, <laughs> you know, in speech marks, is if they do the, the kind of Moto3 trick with KTM where they rebrand a bike. You know, they've got the KTM, the Gas Gas, the Husqvarna, the CF Moto. To me, that and, and I think they could do that. Obviously, it would still technically be a KTM, but do, would that count as the new new kind of constructor? I think that's the only way it could be done. An existing machine, obviously the Suzuki's, if someone was somehow able to take over that project, that would be another way of doing it. But I think the time frame is just too short, definitely for 23. Maybe someone could buy the grid slots and, and you know enter in twenty four or something. But you know to answer the question, I think certainly if any any new manufacturer comes in, I, I just can't see they could get a project up and running. And bear in mind, pitching a MotoGP project now, as Keith mentioned, in this economic Tough climate, sell. you imagine going to yeah going to the board. Hey guys, I've got an idea. Uh, it's going to cost you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, oh. not an easy one. No, no, not an easy one. Uh, well, so that's the triumph uh, dreams dashed. Uh, sorry uh, for whoever said in that question, I've, I've lost your name. But uh, on that, it might be worth uh, moving on to a bit of Moto2 action. We'll come back to some more MotoGP in a moment. But in Moto2 at the weekend, 
weekend at Le Mans. Augusto Fernandez inherited the lead and, well, never looked back, really, as he powered away to victory ahead of uh, Aaron Cannon and Somkiat Chantro's first win uh, since 2019 after Pedro Acosta slid out of contention. He secured pole, Keith, even though he slid out. Do you think this was a bit of a breakthrough weekend for Pedro, who we know is brilliantly fast? Yeah, I think so. I think it's taken him a little longer than he would have expected, and certainly some of us would have expected. We, you know, there's a little bit of smart money on him at the beginning of the year for for achieving perhaps a bit more than he has done. But Acosta, you're never going to write off a talent like that this soon. I mean, he is a sharp little, you know, rider. Disaster for Dixon. I mean, I think about the Brits more than anything. You know, <laughs> Dixon crashing out. Um, yep. Obviously, Sam Lowe's yep. banging his head. He's um, withdrawn from the race again. It's it's Le Mans. You know, it's a it's a it's an awful place to go, Le Mans, when when you know you you're really looking for a result there. It's the French Grand Prix. It's an important round, even though the track itself, you know, the Bugatti track is not you know a favourite for for most riders, but it is one that sort of you can you can see you can sort of eke out a result out of that place. It's one of them ones where you always get a slight shock in the result. I think Bastianini was a shock for the for the win, considering what had happened in the week. Um, I, I was really rooting for a Dixon win. I got this feeling that, that Jake was going to make that work, but he's, he's really going to have to dig in now and make it work for him. But Acosta, you know, you, you can't keep a good man down and he's he'll, he'll be on his way soon. And a bit further back, I thought Bobier, fantastic comeback all the way through to fourth, almost got that first podium. Mm-hmm. I thought that was great. Another rider under pressure, maybe Vietti. You know, the, the results haven't been there. They, it was another good comeback, but still, he's, he's losing a lot of points. What is it, 16 now, the gap to Agura in the championship, going into his home round. So, yeah, there's going to be a lot of pressure on his shoulders at uh, Mugello in two weeks. Right? It certainly will be. Uh, Vietti with 108 points at the moment, ahead of Agura, 92, Canet in third, Arbolino and uh, Augusto Fernandez, the top five in Moto2. Uh, over in Moto3, well, as uh, hectic and, and bizarre as ever, Jamma Messia led, uh, well, a bit of a thrilling uh, Moto3 French Grand Prix over the line for his second win of the season. Shortened race after that red flag with the, the turn 14 sort of spits of rain incident, which saw Garcia, Guevara, Ricardo Rossi, um, Migno, all slide out and into the gravel uh, thankfully uh, all okay but uh, another bit of a bizarre uh, Moto3 Keith but uh, a good result for Jamal Masia. yeah yeah I think um, it's awkward when it's like that and again mm. it's the French Grand Prix and quite often you know the first first race of the day and if the weather is a little bit iffy it's a problem for me the highlight is, is John McPhee John McPhee coming back qualified I think it was 12th finishing 12th okay no one's going to say that's great um, but I think it was because he's been away for such a long time with that back injury and to come back in iffy conditions and get himself well into the points. I think that was, um, it was a good ride. It was a good ride for McPhee. So I'm, I'm feeling quite positive about John McPhee you know, off the back of a whole load of negativity from previous um, weeks and months, because John needs to now get this job done. He needs to perform like he's never performed before. Or we're going to lose him to to, to to Grand Prix racing because all the slots in, in Moto2 are going to be tight as. There's going to be so many riders that are going to be going to Moto2. And that's his only option. He won't be able to go up into MotoGP. There's not, not, any, there's not a gap anywhere that's going to take McPhee on. So is there a Moto2 team that's going to take him? The only way they're going to take him is if he proves that he's a 
you know, podium, regular podium material um, because he's 28 now. And obviously there's a cutoff, you know, the Moto3 cutoff. You, you can't, you won't be able to go back into Moto3 in uh, 2023. Uh, 50 year old, by the way, is the, the cutoff for um, MotoGP and uh, Moto2, unless they've changed it in recent months. I think it's 50. Oh, um, so you can still do it. Pardon me? You could still do it then. <laughs> no, that's my IQ that's 50. <laughs> oh, sorry, my, my mistake. <laughs> it's quite funny when you're doing commentary for the Northwest and you've got Rutter and McGuinness nose to tail out on the track and there's 100 years between them. Wow. wow. They're, they're, both 50, they're both 50 years old. <laughs> um, still so got it. You know, They've still got it. And then you've got Jeremy McWilliams, who's 58 years old and still doing the business. So, um, but the, the cutoff for Grand Prix, quite rightly, by the way, um, is 50 years old, um, apart from Moto3, which is 28. Well, you can be 20, you can be 28 after the season started, which McPhee was, but you can't start a year. He just won't um, be able to come back. Um, yeah, well, as you as you rightly say, big, big week, a big weekend and a, a big rest of the year for, for McPhee. Um, Dennis Fodger, he um, dominated well ahead of Sunday. Uh, he got his first ever pole position, which I was a bit surprised to read, actually. But it, it was his first ever pole position. Um, but managed fourth in the end. But Fogge has just been a bit sort of hit and more miss, really, in the early part of the season. Particularly as we thought, well, you know, coming from last year, he would be right up there challenging and, and probably leading the title, you'd expect. You would have expected that, yeah. And as you say, Harry, dominated the weekend, uh, you know, going into the race. But then well, you got, once you got those spots of rain on the grid, you could kind of see him looking up at the sky and, and, and he clearly wasn't comfortable. So, <laughs> oh God. Uh, of course, then it was red flagged and it was restarted. So it was like, OK. And, and then he was leading, I think, at the start of the last lap and, and dropped to fourth. So I think if anyone could feel sort of pickpocketed, it was him. So, yeah, he went from dominating the weekend to not even getting a podium. But, uh, you know, he's still up there in the championship, isn't he? I think he's, what, 17 points behind Garcia. Garcia, as you say, Harry, was one of those guys that got lucky with the red flag because he'd already fallen. Gravard already fallen. They rushed back. You could see them rushing to, the, before the race had been stopped, rushing to get their bikes back to the pits to avoid that situation in Portimao where they might miss the five-minute, you know, restart rule. Uh, so they, you know, they were back in time, and all riders were eligible for the restart. Original grid position, so so Foggy was on pole again for the restart, and uh, yeah, just just sort of, you know, it, it was all going great until the last lap of the race after after a great weekend. So, yeah, you know, he's still in there though. That's the thing. But but Messia and and the IO team definitely momentum is on their side. He is still in there. He's third at the moment, ninety five points, tied with Jamal Messia, who's second, and Sergio Garcia. Uh, topping the standings at the moment with 112 points. So a uh, long way to go still in this season. So And Moto3, as we all know, we cannot predict it. We cannot predict anything in MotoGP, let alone Moto3. And actually on that, I believe from last weekend, we have all got a point on the board for our podium Ooh. predictions. It could have been more because Keith, well, if Banyaya had uh, held out, you would have had an extra point on top, but you managed to get Miller. So he was on your podium. So you get one point for that. Same for you, Pete, also Miller. Um, our French contingents just didn't really, quarter, I mean, Quattrara <laughs> nearly did, but Zarco didn't didn't quite show up. Alicia Spargro, a point for me back on the podium once again so we all get a point what does that do for our standings i think so keith now because i know you all love the standings in in the crash uh motor gp podcast keith you're on seven points pete you're second with four and i'm in third with three so keith is starting to edge away a little bit now so we you know but long season ahead 
could anything could happen. Um, let's come back to MotoGP, shall we, and uh, talk about more things we can't predict. Um, the Ducati decision, <laughs> uh, it's something, you know, we did speak about it last weekend, but it feels important to do it again because after the, the weekend, we've had Banyaya coming out saying, or perhaps not saying, but intimating that he would prefer Miller as his teammate because he he's a known quantity. Perhaps he might be able to actually get the better of him. But then you've got Miller saying, well, actually, you look at Enea and yeah, he's probably the guy that, that's going to nick my seat. Jorge Martin, another crash, no points after, you know, a, a, another fall. It, he was the hot property at one minute, but if he keeps falling, he's, you know, Ducati aren't going to trust him for his consistency on, on the factory bike, Keith. So uh, what do they do? If it was you, who's it, who's next to Banyaya? Eight bikes on the grid were always going to cause a problem. Mm. Um, and it's caused a problem for Ducati rather than everyone else, like we probably thought it would. Um, you know, eight bikes on the grid, we thought maybe an advantage for Ducati to, to collect data and to, to make their guys, you know, faster everywhere where they could. Um, but in the end, it's turned into a bit of a nightmare, hasn't it? Bastianini, would you put him up with Bagnaia? I think that'll antagonise Bagnaia. I think the beast has got um, a little bit about him that might just um, start to batter Bagnaia a little bit. Um, I think the Jack Miller and Bagnaia fit is quite good in the factory team. Pramac have got factory bikes. You know, you could shift Bagnaia across into Pramac. I think Bagnaia is on a Ducati contract rather than on a team contract. So that does make a difference. It means Ducati can put him where they want to. I think it'd be a bit of a smack in the teeth for Jack Miller um, to, to kick him out of the, the, the main factory team. But, you know, this is, they are ruthless. People are ruthless in these teams. They do want to make the, the moves that they need to make. You know, Zarco, has he performed in the manner that he should have done at the moment? Probably not. You know, he's not, um, he's not where he, he ought to be, although the, the point scoring situation is so you know, I can't believe it how low the point scoring is at the, the top end of things because, you know, they're taking points off each other every weekend. It's a different um, result. I mean, Bastianini, you would think, would be leading this championship with three race wins, but uh, he's not. It's still Quattararo who's, who's pumping in the uh, consistent points. Who would I put in the team? Bastianini is the, is the fly in the ointment, isn't he? Because... What do you do with someone with that amount of talent that's consistently putting the deal together? I don't think they've got a choice. I think he's got to go in the factory team. I think it's it's almost a no-brainer. If he keeps performing in the way he's doing at the moment, he's got to go in the factory team. Will that cause a bit of disharmony in there? More than they have at the moment, let's put it that way. Jack Miller back at Pramac, still on a factory bike. He liked it at Pramac. They liked having him at Pram- Pramac. That would work quite well. And then shake the rest up. Um, it's something they've got to do. I mean, like it's, you know, it, Ducati isn't performing across the board uh, lower than, you know, the three we've talked about really, is it? Andrew Long has suggested slightly something different. Why can't you give Anea a full factory bike in 2023, but keep him in the Grassini team or do a swap with Jorge Martin. Another thing to consider are the, obviously the two Suzuki riders. Are Ducati interested in a 2020 world champion? If Andrew was Ducati, he would be providing an air with factory upgrades this year where possible, and I imagine then keeping him in Grassini with a full factory bike. Factory upgrades are a bit tricky. If you're not on a factory bike, this year's factory bike, nothing fits. It's, it's all, you know, the, the new factory 2022 bikes are... 
You know, there's not much that crosses over between the two. And sometimes you can get a factory bit and it just doesn't work. You know, it's it's as soon as you bolt it on, you think, well, am I, what am I doing with this? As I've said before so many times, a factory bike is not sometimes the easiest of, of the options because factory bike is a full prototype and you've not gone through the full range of testing with it. So you don't know whether it's going to work in the way that you expect it to work at any given circuit. Whereas, like I've said again many times, Bastianini's bike, they've been through that data range already with everything that they've tried bolting on. And they know what to do with that bike when they arrive at a, a, a track and, and they can improve it um, to whatever it's you know, 100% degree is. Um, whereas a, a prototype bike is a different kettle of fish. There's just subtleties to it that, that you can't just dial in straight away. Um, we've said it before, FP1, FP2, FP3. These are you know qualifying for qualifying. It's, it's not like a free practice where you used to be able to go and bung a few bits and pieces on it and give it a try and see how it went or try some different adjustments. Yeah, you do. But if you go too far the wrong way, you've lost those qualifying for qualifying places. And nowadays, you've got to go through the qualifying two um, as quickly as possible because there's only two places that come up from qualifying one. And if you're not one of them, then you're back on the fifth row of the grid. Um, so it's pretty, pretty intense nowadays in MotoGP through, through those... Um, where they're looking for the incremental changes. I still can't get my head around what I do with bloody Ducati. I'm sitting here thinking about it. Well, you asked the question, and while I'm I'm chuntering <laughs> away, to here, out to... I'm thinking to myself, what, what I can't imagine the pain they're going through at the moment. I think what you do in this situation is you just relax with what you've got, do the best with what you've got at the moment, and then shake it all up later. If they've got the contracts with the riders, they can move them around as they want to later in the year. I think the only thing we can be sure of is Bastianini will be on the very latest bike next year. Now, whether if Ducati can convince him, as the, as the question says, to stay at Grassini, that would solve a problem for Ducati, wouldn't it? Um, but it's all going to be about that. You know, if Bastianini's, you know what? No, no, I, I want to be in the factory team on paper. Exactly, Keith. Yeah, on paper, it's a no-brainer, as he says. You, you, Bastianini is the guy, three wins, and he's the only guy up there in the championship at the moment. So, but... Maybe he would be happy at staying at Grassini another year. And if they can convince him, look, you'll have the same bike as the factory team. You'll be with the team you're with now that you feel great with. You know, maybe he'd go with that. Now, there were some rumours coming out that Jack Miller has been talking to KTM. Now, that's not a shock because Jack's, Jack's manager is Aki Ayo, who, of course, knows KTM very well. Uh, and also KTM, but, but having said that, KTM showed interest in Jack previously when uh, Jorge Lorenzo was sort of looking at maybe coming back to Ducati and that might have been at Pramac and Jack might have lost out there. KTM, it seems, did make an offer to Jack of, well, you know, if you if you need somewhere else. So it wouldn't be a surprise for either reason if they are interested <laughs> in Jack again. And, and and certainly that's what Italian TV believe, that um, that there is contact there. There is, a, there is perhaps an offer there. So... Jack does have op other options outside Ducati if he doesn't want to stay, you know, perhaps by moving to Pramac. We've got to see Jorge Martin, as you say, Harry, is the interesting one. He was, of course, signed before Bastianini by Ducati. They both, you know, came up to MotoGP at the same time. But, but Martin was the first pick, if you like. And he's on the latest bike. He's further up the ladder at Ducati. But, you know, the results are not there. There's still people that believe Martin is in contention for the second seat. Because as Keith says, you know, if you, two Italians in that team, we've seen Dovi and, and, and Ian Oni. There was a bit of friction there in the end, wasn't there? You know, maybe Ducati don't want that situation again. But I think it all depends on what Bastianini, if they can keep him happy at, at, at uh, Grassini, I think that'll solve a problem for them. One of the things that should be um, just underlined a bit here is the further down the pecking order team-wise that you are, the less you have in the way of technicians and the like. 
it's very difficult to you know like the big factory team have all the the data engineers software engineers all the people that are right at the cutting edge of, of development um, when you move into a, an independent team or further down the order you lose that strength of, of, of personnel that you would have in the full factory team and if you're running a prototype 2022 2023 ducati you need top men to be able to read what's going on with that bike to you know you need data engineers who can look at the screen and work it out really really quickly and you, obviously that talent is being bred through the paddock more than ever now um but if you're in a, in a slightly lesser independent it is only slightly but it is still lesser you know if, if we take it away from ducati and go to you know lucio lucio cecinello for honda you know he hasn't got anywhere near like the personnel that repsol have got um, and they get first call at the end of the day back to the factory when you want that you know fiber link back to the factory for more information it's uh, they're first in line for it so i think that there is a lot to be said for being in a factory team if you're on a factory bike and bastini's results this year three wins great but what's his next best result eighth i think you know he's he's, he's got this bit of an issue where when things don't work for him He's not getting on the podium, which is really his only weakness at the moment. But as he says, he's he's very reliant on the front tire. So if the front tire is not quite working for him, that's where he struggles. And as Keith says, maybe with more more engineers around, they could help iron that out. Maybe that's what he needs. But as I say, I think with the position he's in, he's, he's in a very strong position. Uh, Bastianini and his manager, Carlo Panat, who knows Ducati very well. He's placed a lot of riders at their, their factory over the years, hasn't he? So I think they're, they're in a strong position to say, look, this is the deal we want and uh you know get the best possible bike team package for next i bet year. i know where harry's going now well i was just tires tires well i was just gonna say on top of that and when jorge martin isn't crashing out and not scoring points he's either getting pole position or scoring on the podium so you know to add to the debate that they have but go on then let's uh let's do the tire situation then keith i uh, know we've spoken about it a little bit and, it, and the big news broke i suppose i say broken in inverted commas because i mean now, explain it, was, it to me keith what it, it's what, what's happening well what it was was matt oxley managed to get hold of a sheet of paper that's readily available to everybody within the teams and um, being a journalist of course this was this sensational piece that he put out that that you know everybody's cheating um what it is, is it a gentleman's agreement, as it is at the moment, between all of the teams that they um, provide sheets to uh, Michelin. Michelin are working with all of the teams because there isn't quite the robust enough system for accurately and securely measuring the tyre temperature, tyre pressures across all of the manufacturers. Um, the software is not quite there. The, the protocol is not quite there. It was supposed to be there this year, but it didn't get signed off. So um, 2023, uh, there will be this system in place where, you know, every millisecond of a, of, of a motorcycle's running, uh, the information will be available to a race direction and, and they'll be able to see whether somebody has transgressed the rule. The rule has always been there, but I think what's happened is, is because there's not a robust enough, robust enough system behind it at the moment, nobody gets penalised. Um, now, I think the bigger question is, is why the bloody hell is that? You know, like we're on a prototype series here. Everybody knows that tyre pressures are a critical factor. Uh, Michelin give a, a, you know, a, a lower than which you're not supposed to go tyre pressure. And yet there are people going below that, that minimum tyre pressure. So straight away. But so why don't they get a penalty? 
because it can be manipulated at the moment, it can still be manipulated up and down. I mean, these, the, even the paperwork that Oxley got his hands on could be manipulated. It could be inaccurate. So it's kind of one of these things. It's a, it's a big story and it's a non-story as well. It's one of these things that it seems sensational and everybody's jumped up and down all over it. Um, but the system isn't in place to accurately um, give the data um, without it being able to be manipulated in some way, shape or form. That's not to say that anybody is manipulating it, but it can be. And that's the, you, you, you can't penalise people in a system that, that can be cheated if somebody so desires to do so. So the big question is, why has it taken so long to get to where we're getting to for 2023? That would be my question. It's ridiculous. It, you know, when tyres and their tyre pressures are so critical to performance, um, this should have been in place forever ago. I mean, I ran Danny Aldridge and said, Dan, I thought we were already here. You know, like I'm sure you three, you two did. I, I mean, I, I thought we were already in a position where that was the case, like in Moto2, if you like. Um, but it's not. But it will be. But everybody, everybody knew about this. This is not a secret. This is not a secret. In actual fact, from the paperwork that I've already seen, if um, if you took from that paper, there wouldn't be, I think there'd only be one or two um, teams that wouldn't have been penalised this year already for running low tyre pressures. Everyone would have had a penalty at some stage. Um, so it's something and nothing. And I think that, you know, it's kind of, it's a wonderfully sensational story for for taken in slightly out of context, I always feel, in this situation. I think MotoGP's brought this on their sales a little bit. As Keith exactly. explained, by what, why didn't they make this public? Then at the start of the year, just say, this is the situation, and then it would have been clear. I think, you know, Matt getting that, that, that printout, that was a great scoop, in fairness. I, I think anyone would have been pleased to get hold of that. But again, if it had been made clear, uh, you know, at the start of the year, look, we're developing the system. There was a statement put out by Dorna, wasn't there, after this all broke, that, that explained why, uh, as you've explained then again, Keith, you know, why they're not being punished at the moment. But by keeping it quiet, it, it does give the uh, the impression that there's something going on, isn't there? Even though these sheets are available to all of the teams, as Banyaya said, 18 riders have been under. Now, you might say, why do people go under then? And the problem is that the tyre pressure changes, of course, during the race, doesn't it? When, especially if you're behind another rider. Banyaya was under throughout the race at Jerez, but he was leading all the time. His teammate, Jack Miller, he passed the test. Now, they're on the same bike. Uh, so you've got to believe that probably, I mean, we don't know for sure, but they could well have had the same starting pressures. It's just that that Jack was in the pack. So he was, a, it's half the race, isn't it? You have to meet the, the limit. And, for. So he met the, the limit. That uh, is the problem, and, Pete. You've hit the nail on the head, Pete. It's a, it's a situation where, you know, they all start with pressures below um, what is supposedly legal, and they rely on the track temperature and the the pace that they're getting. You know, if you're if you're a second off the pace, your tire temperature is going to go down. If you're in the middle of the pack, your tire temperature is going to go right up. What difference does it make? Well, on the front end, you end up with it ballooning, so you end up with a with a with a lesser contact patch at the front end because the, the you know it's it's kind of the, temp the, the pressure has gone up to such an extent where the tyre doesn't flex, doesn't squidge into the into the tarmac like it should do. It's tiny, but it's critical at this level. When we are when we're looking at three decimal points for a you know qualifying situation, sometimes that, that makes the difference. When you've got a second that covers twenty four bikes, sometimes you know it's crazy close at the moment. So you know cheating is what it could be said it is, but 
I like to think it's more a, excuse me a minute. <laughs> I cannot believe that I'm actually sitting here. I've got, I do, I do apologise to folks that are listening to this. I've got a stinking cold and I've got a throat like it feels like a raft. I was going to say, apologise to the people watching, watching this. YouTube, it, we'll, um, it's the people we'll watching it, it that it. can anyway. see you. The listeners won't know that you're wiping your nose. Uh... No, I know. Yeah, but I do apologise. But, um, you know, tyre pressures, I don't quite know where they're going to go with this, um, you know, because they give an option. If they say that you, I think that you need to be able to say that you're starting at the minimum point. I don't think there should be any leeway in that. I think if it's 1.9 bar or whatever it is, it's 1.9 bar. And if you've not started at that point, then you're illegal and you get penalised. I think if you allow them to be under at the start of a race, um, then in that case, you, you leave you leave it almost for the point if the rider isn't performing or if he or if there's a cloud comes over the track or if something changes or if he's in fresh air, um, he's going to be under for longer than the 50%. Um, so it is, it's, a, it's, it's almost, you know, you've got, to, you've got to have a crystal ball for tyres, haven't you? You've got to be able to work out where it's going to go, where it's likely to go. But if you, if you make it that <clears throat> the minimum uh, tyre tire pressure is this at the start of a race, so when you go to the grid, you know, if you're under, you get penalised. The, the, I mean, that seems the obvious thing, doesn't it? Just just check it before the race. Of course, what you could then do is you can make the tyres even hotter in the tyre warmers so that they're a bit, you know, so that they drop more once the tyre warmers come out. And, and as you say, Keith, you know, what's the time between taking the tyres out of the tyre warmer and putting the gauge on? You know, everything would have to be sort of standardised because it will change so much. You know, it might be legal when they when, when it's in the tyre warmers, and then it drops down on the grid. It would depend. Are you the first bike they check on the grid? Have you been standing on the grid for a few minutes? So the, the temperature and pressure has gone down a bit. It, it, well, know, it's is, amazing it, that there isn't something in place, isn't there? That's, it will that's be in it. real time. The measurements will be in real time. So all of the grid will be checked at the same time. You know, it's not like there will be separate or incremental. The guy who gets his pressure, it's not like going up there with one of them bloody pressure gauges and then put it on the, on the valve. <laughs> Um, it'll all be done, you know, through through data, and uh, and and that I think that's the difficulty. That is the difficulty they're up against. All the things that you've just said and above, it's a it's a nightmare scenario, really, to try and get that standardised and measured in a way that that doesn't penalise someone somewhere unnecessarily. Tricky, isn't it? I, 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 how could it how could it be so bloody difficult putting air in a tyre? <laughs> I think you should go out and do it for the next Grand Prix, and uh, and you should be in charge of it. Or I think Keith. They don't want any hot air. Yeah. They only want cool air. <laughs> Keith, I'd like to. Sit... You could kick the you could kick the tires on the grid, Keith, and just you know. Yeah, yeah, looks yeah like... it'd be all right. Yeah. <laughs> Keith, Keith Hewitt in a management position at Dorna is what I would like to see. I think that would really start to season changes. That'd be delightful. I'll tell you what, Dorna, Dorna, and the technical department at Erta are very smart people. If they've not put this in place, there's a reason for that. Mm. It's yeah, we're talking about the MSMA, some of the smartest brains there are, and just the, the complexity of it. I mean, Pete, you've touched on it, you know, and I'm sure that's just the surface of it. There, there have got to be a lot of reasons why this hasn't happened already. And, you know, some of the smartest brains in the world are working their way around it on how they can implement something that can't be tampered with, that can't be falsified, that is secure, and that also doesn't penalise everybody unnecessarily because of other factors that's that's the issue you've just said it you know you're running tire warmers at two or three degrees higher than than the next man and your tire pressure will be legal at the time you whip them off and um, go to the grid you know 
it's it's a similar situation to they they measure the temperature of fuel you know at the end of the day you you freeze fuel fuel you know cold fuel going through a motor will perform and it also is is lesser in capacity so if you've got a situation where you are you know you're you're close to to, to capacity uh, you know race distance wise then cold fuel counts um they seem to have got over that all right although you know i have seen incidences where cold fuel have, have picked up a penalty and now we've got the same thing there's got to be scientists out there other than you know we're bloody useless at it aren't we at the end of the day we're just the again it's something right off the back of it it's 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 just so complex for something so simple but isn't that always the case simple stuff is complex always is it's uh not quite rocket science or brain surgery but it's uh, still pretty complex i think so motor gp continues uh to roll on i think we'll leave it there for now thank you gents um when I, every time i think well we might might not have quite enough to talk about um you always you always surprise me and there's always something to talk about when it's motor gp when it's a season like this as well and of course uh, the next uh, grand prix a couple of weeks time uh, the italian uh, grand prix return to italy uh, and we'll be back next week same time same place to preview it all in the meantime though make sure you are tuned in across crash.net for all the latest news analysis across the week uh, and then we will be back with you once more get your questions in leave them in all the usual places comment section tweet instagram or facebook us just search crash moto gp please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts and uh, yeah we'll see you right back here next week bye-bye Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.